So hi, everyone. Welcome to the January 22nd ASF Weekly Science Podcast. As you all know, communication challenges are at the core of autism features. Some people have difficulty with social interactions and communicating socially, all the way to some have no language at all or little or no verbal communication and must rely on either nonverbal communication or augmentative and alternative communication devices to express themselves. So researchers have put this number at around 25 to 30% of people who are non-speaking or minimally verbal. And that's pretty consistent with the percent of people who have what's labeled as profound autism. And that includes individuals who are minimally verbal or have a profound intellectual disability. So the numbers of those who are minimally verbal or non-speaking hover around 25 to 30%, maybe different slightly from study to study. The important thing here is the lack of ability to communicate verbally can be debilitating and disabling. These individuals may not be able to communicate basic things like pain, nevertheless, their interest in certain objects or their communicative intent. So I would say even 10 years ago, we assumed that those who had no expressive language also had little receptive language, but we didn't really have any data on it. I want to fast forward to just this past year, just a few months ago, a group at Boston University led by my guest, Dr. Yanru Chen, examined both the expressive and receptive language abilities of about 1,500 minimally verbal or non-speaking autistic children. So these were kids between the ages of five and 15 years of age. So she's going to tell us a little bit more about the study and what the words expressive and receptive language abilities mean. But first, I want to thank Dr. Chen for participating in today's podcast. And do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and your interest in this topic? Yeah, absolutely. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Yan Bu Chen. I'm currently a postdoc at the Center for Autism Research Excellence at Boston University. Uh, I got my PhD in Intellectual Disability and Autism program from Columbia University. Um, so I've been working with children with autism and their family for more than 10 years now. So I'm really interested uh, in this topic because when I work with um, the population, I realize that they're so different, right? We always see, you see one kids with autism, you see one kids with autism. Some of them, even though they may struggle with developing spoken language, but they understand us much better. But some of them, we're trying so hard, we still not find the best way to communicate with them. So that was what um, motivated me to look into their receptive language and what's the differences between their receptive and expressive language level. Well, we've now said the words receptive and expressive language a few times. Yeah. Um, can you explain what those terms mean for people that may not be familiar with those terms, expressive versus receptive language? And what's yeah. the difference between them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when we say expressive language, that means the words, the phrases, or the sentences that are produced by them, right? Or we call it spoken language. And when we refer to receptive language, it's how much a person can understand another person's spoken language. So it's more like language comprehension ability. So when we look into the discrepancies between receptive and expressive language, that also means the differences between a person's levels of producing language and understanding language. So there's mm -hmm. different assessments for figuring out how expressive and language and receptive language works. Mm -hmm. I've exactly. also used the word minimally verbal. Can you, or a non-speaking, um, yeah. 
Can you kind of maybe operationalize that or describe that a little <laughs> bit better than just the words minimally verbal? Yeah, I would try. Um, so I would say right now, the field still does not have a consensus on how to define minimally verbal. And there's so many ways to define it. But overall, if I need to use lay language, that means a people that who only have a few words or phrases. Uh, some people will define it as, you know, they will only have less than 20 functional words. Uh, they will use it in a really limited way. And some people may define it through standardized observational measure, for example, the ADAS. Uh, if we assign a trial a module one, which means the kids may mainly just use single words to communicate with us, then we all and then we will also consider them as minimally verbal. So there are multiple multiple ways to define it. And what have been what's some of the factors in previous studies? Because you're an expert here. Um, in previous studies that have been associated with being autistic and minimally verbal. So there are certain certain characteristics that, that these individuals have. Yeah, that's a big question. I need to say that, so overall, we're still trying to figure out why the minimally verbal um, population still struggle with uh, developing spoken language. Uh, there are many hypotheses there. It may be possible that they have auditory processing difficulties, right? If you cannot uh, hear a certain speech sounds, there's almost no way that like, you, you're going to be able to produce them, right? Mm -hmm. And there may be some oral motor functioning difficulties um, that our lab is still testing it out currently through a large project. Um, but overall in the literature, we find that it's also often likely that we observe um, minimally robotistic uh, individuals may also have um, lower intellectual disability, or we would say lower adaptive functioning. Um, so we, so overall, we're still trying to figure out mm -hmm. um, why you know some autistic individual they can develop um, typical level of language ability, but some they they remain minimally verbal throughout their life. Yeah, and I think that's you know the million dollar question here, and that your study somewhat addressed here is that if people aren't able to communicate what they know or what they feel, how much understanding of the word of the world do they actually have? Um, so you were able to actually go out and collect data from 1500 people um, that looked at both receptive and expressive language to be able to understand the people that weren't able to speak. What was it, if anything, that they were able to understand? So 1,500 for people that don't know this, that's a huge number. I mean, if you think about only a subgroup mm -hmm. of people within a condition right. like autism are minimally verbal, getting 1,500 of them together is a huge feat. So can you tell us how you did that and what sorts of things were you collecting or what sorts of information were you putting together when you um, sought out those 1,500 people? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I need to clarify that we didn't collect those data directly because it's so hard to recruit minimally verbal autistic individuals to the lab. But we also want to have a large enough sample size to answer this important research question. So, and then we reach out to two national databases. One is called ENDA, National Database for Autism Research, uh, sponsored by uh, the National Institute of Health. The other is the Safari Base, which is supported by the Simon Foundation. So we reach out to them and saying that we have this important research questions that we hope that we can answer. And it's a possible that you can share your data with us. And so we appreciate, we really, really appreciate their generosities of sharing their data with us. So we sought out 
a huge uh, data set and then we clean up the data to make sure that at least first they're within the age range that we're interested in. So age five to 18 years old. Uh, and then we have the necessary uh, measures that we can come from that first they are autistic and they're in deep minimally verbal. So that's why we use the ADAS. We make sure that every individuals uh, in the database have uh, an ADAS module one, and then they have at least one language measure, either reported by parents on the violence or the standardized language measure. Um, so those are um, the factors that we look into, you know, the database. So we clean it up. So and then are we really happy that we have a thousand five hundred seventy-nine participants in our final sample size? Yeah, I want to stress again to get 1,500 <laughs> individuals. That means that you were able to get that many individuals with that level of data. So I want to encourage people who are listening to this to either participate in Spark um, or participate in research in general. So NDAR is actually a data repository for all these individual studies um, that are funded by the NIH. They require their data to be deposited for this very reason. So. If you participate in research, your data goes just far farther than just the immediate study that you're participating in. So um, anyway, that's a, a plug for Spark. And the fact that this sort of analysis wasn't able to be done because mm -hmm. we're gonna talk about this, there's some, some heterogeneity here um, and that you needed 1500 or it would be great to have more, but 1500 is great yeah. individuals where you could ask these questions. Yeah, so absolutely. your your main thing was looking at the difference between receptive language and expressive language. And what what did you find? If you could just kind of like talk about the main points of what you found in terms of the differences and the similarities, because you took the same person and looked at those differences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So first, uh, we didn't only look at the differences. We we first looked into the receptive language. So how does the receptive language level look like? Because we cannot look into the differences without answering this very first question, right? So we first found that the receptive language ability in minimally verbal autistic children and adolescents, um, they were much lower than their non-autistic peers based on the standardized measure and parent reports. Um, there was some variation there, but they're overall, you know, they're lower. Mm -hmm. And then their receptive recept gap actually widened as they age. So which means when they get older, that, you know, their gap between their language receptive level and what we typically would see in a neurotypical individuals are actually widened. So that's the mm. first finding. Um, so, and then we look into the differences between their receptive and expressive language level. And we find that uh, most of the people, um, I would say 75%, uh, they're not significant differences. They are all pretty much, um, their receptive language is pretty much um, aligned with their minimal express level. However, there is roughly 25%, so a quarter of the people, they have significantly better. So I would say meaningfully better receptive language abilities than their minimal express level. And that really explains why when we work with autistic, uh, uh, minimally verbal autistic ind individuals directly, we can observe that some of them, they, they didn't actually understand us better. But we also want to emphasize that even though there's 25 people, when they compare to their own express level, they have much better language comprehension ability. When we compare their receptive language with the, uh, the typical population, they're still much lower. So there's still mm -hmm. much more that we need to do. So um, what does it mean when you say they matched? So mm. 
they're they have let, let's just say this they have poor expressive language they match meaning they have poor and i'm just throwing these words out there poor receptive language mm -hmm. so, so we use the standard score so that's we already put the age into factor so like compared to the same age group uh, what's the language levels we looks like, mm -hmm. right? Are you in the 50 percentage or like the 90 percentage? How, is, how does it look like? Um, so it's more meaningful to compare that way. Um, so when I say they're more similar, that means their um, their standard their, their standard scores are not significantly different uh, because we use the violin and violin has this established uh, pairwise comparisons critical value like how two subscales that differ from each other. And you, we can compare so many things, right? And we just happen to compare the receptive and expressive language because that's what we wanted to answer the questions. Um, and then when there were the differences between those two scores, it's more than the established critical value, then we would say that it's really different. Mm -hmm. So I want to emphasize that there was only one participants in our 150, uh, 1,500 participants have much better expressive than receptive language. And most of the people, they're only like, they're really similar. Even though there may be some minimal differences, but it's not clinically significant. Um, but, and then the 25% of the people, they have clinically significant, much better receptive language than their expressive language level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that's still, the receptive language is still lower lower than than then, it would be considered neurotypical exactly mm -hmm. so what does this mean for intervention supports so you have and i'm not saying we group them based on the 25 versus the 75 but you have this mm -hmm. group of 25 that may be able to understand things a little bit better than they're able to communicate mm -hmm. them and then right. you have people that um you know express about as much as they can understand so what yeah. does this mean for intervention opportunities? I mean, clearly, if one thing I want to say, if one thing listeners of this podcast know is that one intervention or one support is not going to work for everyone on the spectrum, it's usually going to be a combination of supports and mm -hmm. people shouldn't expect just because they're, you know, their neighbor, somebody, something worked for their neighbor, it may work for them. So yeah. that, we already know that, but what in your words would you say this means for intervention supports? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first one is our study shows that the language profiles of minimally verbal autistic individuals, they're really heterogeneous, right? So we see the 25%, they're pretty much, they have pretty much low receptive and expressive language level, but there's still 25% they have much better receptive language. So they're really heterogeneous. Mm -hmm. Even though when we look at this um, end of the, on the spectrum, there's still so many variations in there and we need to recognize that individual differences. And then in terms of um, interventions, so let's say for those 25% of the individuals, they have better receptive language, right, compared to their minimal expressive language. So I think clinicians and teachers can use that strength as a, as, as a stepping stone to scaffold their overall language development. You know, when they plan their interventions and educational practice, they know that, oh, these are the populations that they have much better receptive language, even though they're still low, this is still low, right, compared to the typical population. But they probably understand us much better. Then we can we can scaffold that, right? Because receptive language is a it's a, also a, a foundation for the overall language development. You have to understand what other people are saying before mm -hmm. you can produce that that word, right? So I think it's it's a good it's a good um way to use that strength, the relative strength, I would say, the relative strength as a as a stepping stone. 
And then for the 75% of the population that their expressive and receptive language are so minimal, then we have to care, be careful about how we're going to communicate with them. So let's say I won't recommend we will use like really compact sentences when we're trying to communicate with them, right? We probably want to want to use more clear, you know, concise words or maybe combine with gestures, right? We we can use AAC or pictures and many other things, or we can use a lot of modeling and demonstrations to help them communicate and understand what we're talking. So there's a wide range of, yeah. of these intervention supports and can you give us some examples of what what some what they would look like like for someone who's non-speaking mm. what are some of the the interventions that are used yeah yeah so um first of all as you said it can be really variation really depends on the individual's needs right so that's why we always emphasize we need to individualize the intervention uh but if i have to name a field so i would uh, i would say jasper that's the uh the NDBI, we say natural, naturalistic developmental behavior intervention that our lab also currently have an intervention study. Um, so that depends on the child's language level and we would say play level. And then there is a clinician that may scaffold that play level and hopefully, uh, you know, over time we can develop those prelinguistic skills. And when we say prelinguistic skill, that means like, for example, how the kids engage with another people, right, play, and also like use different social communications skills like pointing, eye contact, facial expressions to scaffold that like communication. Then, you know, once we have that prelinguistic skill, it's more likely the, the trial will develop spoken language. Um, so that's one out there. Uh, it's it's really evidence-based, many people love it. Uh, and we hear many good um, feedback from the family that they see the changes in their, in their trial after receiving Jasper. Uh, and I was a special ed teacher before in an early childhood special ed classroom. So I also deliver many uh, educational uh, programs and interventions to uh, children who are nonverbal or preverbal or minimally verbal as well. So so we did a lot. So we do a lot of, lot, a lot of like, for example, matching games, right? Uh, and then we follow the child around the classroom, uh, provide following comments rather than we put a lot of demands or suggestions on them because it's very important that we follow their inches and it's more likely they're gonna engage with us. So for example, whenever a child touch a toy, I name it. For example, good job touching the giraffe. Giraffe, this is a giraffe, something like that. So slowly scaffold that, um, that language exposure. So there's so many ways out there. Not yeah. everyone has access to an iPad. So um, do, individuals who are minimally verbal, do they benefit from an iPad or some other sort of device, a speech generating device, something like that? Yeah, AAC, right? Mm -hmm. well, I, would, I would say yes, absolutely. So I know that, so when we talk to the family, some of them, they, they, they're just concerned about, okay, if I let the kids use this AAC or speech generalized devices, would that influence their spoken language, right? Should I just take the time to learn about how to use these devices or should I just talk to the kids more, right? There's so many questions out there. I yeah. really, I really understand that. Um, so, so from research wise, I, I, I need to say that there's no evidence showing that using AAC would prevent spoken language development. But clinically or anecdotally, we, we always see the opposite, right? So when the kids use the AAC more, they have this modality to communicate with others. 
they are more emotionally stable because their 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 requests are heard, right? We can we can have a better modality to communicate with them, and oftentimes we see the developed spoken language students, you know, after they use AAC. Some may not, because like there are so many factors that influence the spoken language development. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yes, short answer is yes. You know, uh, AAC is a good way for them to communicate with others before they have the ability to uh, produce those spoken words. So I just have one last question, which is what's yeah. next? So you're, you're, you, this is, an, it's a great study. You're still probably investigating all these different other questions having to do with individuals who are non-speaking or minimally verbal. Mm-hmm. So what, what is your next kind of study or what, how are you building yeah. on this project? Yes, that's a great question. I have a lot to talk about. So I want to study more about uh, naturalistic social communication between autistic children and neurotypical and autistic children, right? Because this is what we see in the general ed classrooms. I want to see how parents and teachers can scaffold their naturalistic social communications and interaction with each other. So that's one line of my research. Uh, the other I would like to see more is about uh, reading and writing those literacy skills in minimally verbal autistic individuals, you know. So even though they they may struggle with spoken language, but reading and writing it's mm. a it's a different dimensions of language skills. So that's also one area that I, I'm so interested in looking into, and I really hope to have more conversation with the uh, with other researchers um, and also families and hear the needs of the community as well. I hope to I hope to um, have the community to guide my future research directions. Well, thank you. The community is very lucky that you're on their side. Uh-huh. We're very lucky that you're you're helping us. So, um, thank you so much for for participating in this. Um, yeah. And I will put a link to the paper. It's not open access, but I'll put a link to the abstract mm-hmm. in the podcast summary. Yes, sounds wonderful. Thank you, thank thank you so you much for having me today. Thank you.